Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 32, Matthew writes, As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. In chapter 9, Matthew continues to highlight the king's ministry of healing. We've seen Jesus heal a paralytic in verses 1 through 8. He has brought a dead girl back to life in verses 18 and 19 and verses 23 through 26. He's healed a sick woman in verses 20 through 22. He's healed two blind men in verses 27 through 31. And now he will deliver a demon-possessed mute in verses 32 through 34. In this passage, we see someone... Totally helpless in verse 32. Jesus who is totally holy in verse 33. The miracle manufactures amazement on the part of those watching. But not everyone is impressed. One of the things that's happening is that the religious leaders accuse Jesus of exercising power over demons because he himself, according to them, has partnered with the powers of darkness. The miracle is undeniable. The only thing left for the religious leaders to do is to argue its source. Where did the power come from? Curiosity will morph into unrestrained hatred and then hostility. This is a kind of stubborn unbelief. Jesus has healed someone who was deprived of motion in verses 1 through 8. Deprived of health in verses 20 and 22. Deprived of life in verses 23 through 26. Deprived of sight, verses 27 through 31. And now he is going to heal someone who in the most fundamental sense has been deprived of themselves because of a demonic occupation. And sound. So we look first at the helpless one in verse 32. Look what it says. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon possessed. When you look at verse 32 and it says, as they went out, they brought to him a man. Who's the they in verse 32? I'm going to suggest to you, could it be in the context that these are the formerly blind people. Is it possible, Jesus said, look, this healing that we're talking about here, I need you to keep it to yourself. I need you to keep this private, but they do not keep it private. These formerly blind men bring this tormented, tortured, unfortunate soul to Jesus. And if that's the case... It provides support for the idea that these men gain something more than just their sight. They wanted to bring someone helpless to Jesus for healing. 
and salvation. And for those of you who have a right relationship with God in Christ, those of you who've experienced the power of what it means to know about his love and know about his mercy and know about his forgiveness, it makes perfect sense to you that you're going to bring other people so that they can experience what you've experienced. Some Bible teachers have seen spiritual significance in the progression of the chapter. Jesus first gives life, then Jesus gives understanding, then Jesus gives testimony, if you will. And I think that that's right. The text tells us the man was possessed by an evil spirit. And we've already talked about the symptoms of demonic possession in chapter 8, verses 28 through 24. Actually, chapter 8, uh, verses 24 through 28. And if you go there, I outlined some of those symptoms. Now, remember, we live in a world and we live in a culture of stubborn resistance. They don't necessarily believe that there is such a thing as a devil or demons. They deny that there's an invisible supernatural world populated by spiritual beings. The text tells us that this man really was possessed. The Bible teaches that there really are evil spirits. So what can they do? Again, according to the Bible, these unclean spirits are sometimes capable of producing muteness of speech. Some other things recorded in the scripture are that they can produce mental, emotional, instability, insanity in Matthew chapter 8 verse 28, Mark chapter 5 verse 15, Luke chapter 8 verse 27. They can produce disease, Matthew 10:1, Mark 1:23, Acts 5:16. Not only can they do that, they can produce deafness here in our passage, also in Mark 9:25 epilepsy in Matthew chapter 17 verse 15 blindness in Matthew 12:22 suicidal ideation or self-destructive tendencies in Mark chapter 9 verse 22 personal injuries in Mark 9:18 in the past evil spirits you'll remember in the old testament they tormented king Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. The Bible also says that in the future, demons are described as inflicting grievous torture upon those who are unsaved during the time of a future tribulation in Revelation chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. And so we see demons working in the past and in the present and in the future. And by the way, we read of only one person, one Old Testament character that God uses in some way to participate in the suppression or the alleviation or even the exorcism of demons. And it's Jesus' very famous father, David. You'll remember David plays praise. You'll remember that David would take his instrument and he would sing of the beauty, the glory, and the majesty of God. And what it would do is it would provide some relief for Saul. Worship does that. Demons oppose the purposes of God. Demons execute Satan's plans. 
demons disseminate false doctrine. And by the way, the word translated here, mute, is very interesting. It's the Greek word kaphos. It means both deaf and dumb. Literally, the passage reads, could not talk. The Bible teaches that sometimes spirit beings have the ability to restrain or restrict certain human functions. But make no mistake about it. Demons hate human beings. Demons sometimes appear to imprison the soul by imprisoning the senses. And there's no greater imprisonment than the imprisonment that takes place as people are blinded, not just simply physically, but emotionally, intellectually, as they're unable to reason. So we go from this helpless person to the holy one. And look what it says in verse 33. And when the demon was cast out, literally it means expelled, the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled saying it was never seen like this in Israel. Now it's interesting. The text doesn't tell us how Jesus cast out the demon. It doesn't use a formula. It doesn't use a word. It doesn't say that he touched him. We're not told. We are told, and look what the text says. The mute spoke. Isn't that interesting? It may not be all that interesting to you. But imagine if we suggested something. Can we imagine what he might have said? Again, for the purist, you might be thinking, Gino, don't go there. You can't say what the text doesn't say. And you would be exactly right. We don't know what he said. We know that he spoke. Do you suppose that the restoration of his speech would result in honor to God and praise to God? If God has given you back your voice, don't you suppose you would use it to honor him and praise him, but you would be exactly right. The text doesn't tell us, but we would be absolutely correct in asking a different question. And that is, what has Jesus done for you? Has Jesus given you back your life? Has Jesus given you back your heart? Has he given you back your mind? Has he given you back your marriage? Has he given you back your ability to speak? This last week I was reading about Tim Tebow being cut from the Philadelphia Eagles and the headlines read, outspoken Christian cut. Well, we laugh because of the culture and the world in which we live in. Quiet Christians have at least some acceptance. But if a person decides that they're not going to be a quiet Christian, if they're going to actually speak out, if they're going to open up their mouth and they're going to actually declare what God has done in their life, how he loves them and how he died for them and how he forgives people and he restores families and he reconciles people that you're seen as outspoken. But I think that the time has come. If ever there was a time, if ever there was a time in the history of Christianity where you should reject the label quiet Christian 
and speak. Open up your mouth because God's given you back your life. He's given you something to say. The miracle generates marvel. Ordinary people are impressed. Regular people start to develop faith. Some people start to believe that Jesus must be a real prophet with real powers from God, that his message must be a message that has been given to him by the God of Israel. Many in the world are willing to heap praise on Jesus, say nice things about Jesus, but they have no intention of personally submitting to him. John MacArthur writes correctly, quote, Pontius Pilate declared him to be innocent of any wrong, and then a short while later approved of his death sentence. The French philosopher Diderot said Jesus was the unsurpassed, and the great French emperor Napoleon said he was the emperor of love. D.F. Strauss, the liberal German theologian, said Jesus was the highest model of religion. The English philosopher and economist John Stuart Mill called him the guide of humanity. William Lecky, the Irish historian, said he was the highest pattern of virtue. James Martineau, the English theologian and philosopher, called him the divine flower of humanity. The French historian Joseph Renan acknowledged Jesus to be the greatest among the sons of men, unquote. Movie stars, celebrities, politicians are full of lovely sentiments about Jesus. But very few have the courage to express saving faith. We have to open up our mouth. Has Jesus saved you? Did he forgive your sin? Did he wash your heart? Did he cleanse your conscience? Are you saved? Do you really know him? Do you love him? This final abbreviated miracle calls the reader once again to consider the claims of Jesus as Israel's Messiah. Jesus has the power and the authority. We've already seen it over disease, over the storms and disaster, over death and darkness and demons. Jesus has power over the visible world and Jesus has power over the invisible world. It's as if Matthew is saying, Open your eyes and unstop your ears and open your hearts to the Holy One. And how much power does Jesus possess? And how do the people react to that power? There's one group of people who are amazed. The miracle of Jesus produces marvel. In some, but malice in others. The Bible's record of Jesus' miracles were in part not only to prove his identity, but also to prove his message. The miracles prove his power to save, it also proves his right to rule. And so that's part of the testimony of the New Testament his power to save you. His right to rule in your life. And I'm going to suggest to you 
that the miracles would serve another function as well. It would wind up having yet another purpose. It will separate the wheat from the chaff. It will separate the believer and the unbeliever. It will separate those who accept Jesus and those who reject Jesus. And that's the testimony. Jesus is the great dividing line in all of human history. Israel's history is really a testimony of God's dealing with the people on this planet. Israel existed in part to fulfill the prophecy and bring forth the Messiah, the fate of nations and the fate of individuals will in fact determine what happens to you forever. And so the Bible's invitation is, of course you should open up your mouth. Speak about Jesus in your home. Speak about Jesus in your school. Speak about Jesus in the workplace. Speak about Jesus. 3% of, of this culture's population has hijacked the cultural construct. What would happen if real Christians say, no, I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to talk about his love and I'm going to talk about his power and I am going to not be silent anymore. And guess what? Those who look to Jesus receive life. Those who look away from Jesus are still open to demonic suggestion, oppression, perhaps even possession. And so how about you? Maybe you were glad when we went through Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 7. The statements that Jesus made on the Sermon on the Mount, we see his excellent testimony, his great character. But what happens? What happens with the confrontational teachings that Jesus will give? What about the Savior who will condemn sin and call people to repentance and demand submission? Do you turn from him? By the way, a lot of people will give Jesus highest praise, quoting his wisdom, acknowledging his divine nature, alluding to his holy perfections. But the moment Jesus speaks, the moment Jesus condemns lying, the moment he condemns the religious hypocrite, the moment that he asks you to take stock if you're killing people and you're an adulterer or you're sexually immoral, the moment that he asks the sinner to turn from their sin and to receive him, not on their terms, but on his terms, what will you do? Can a case be made that the Jesus of the New Testament confronts sin? I think the answer is yes. Invites repentance? I think the answer is yes. And presents himself as the solution? I think that, that, that the answer is yes. But for some people, the moment Jesus does that, they will turn away. Just like some of you. You've embraced Jesus 
But then the hard time comes and the difficult time comes and the challenging relationship comes. Why, why, why must Jesus confront sin in the world? Why does he have to confront the devil and darkness and demons? Why does Jesus do this? Because God is holy and Jesus is holy. And the word holy is almost completely lost to our culture. And that makes perfect sense to me. It makes perfect sense that we live in a world that doesn't value holiness. It makes perfect sense that at your work or at your school, you're going to be surrounded by people who don't value Jesus and who don't value holiness. The thing that is most distressing to me is that the Christian personally and the people in the church are also willing to do away with holiness. Jerry Bridges says, quote, to be holy is to be morally blameless. It is to be separated from sin and therefore consecrated to God. The word signifies separation to God and the conduct befitting those who are separated, unquote. Over and over again in our Bible studies, I've repeatedly reminded you that holiness means set apart. And it must mean set apart from sin. And it must mean consecrated to God. Augustine wrote, quote, sin is believing the lie that you're self-created, that you're self-dependent, that you're self-sustained, unquote. What's remarkable about that statement is when Augustine lived in the 4th century AD, he makes that statement 1,600 years ago. Martin Luther says, sin is essentially a departure from God, unquote. This isn't new news. This isn't something that Gino has made up for a brand new generation. Constantly throughout the history of the church, there has been an invitation to turn from sin and to turn to the Savior. And so why do I bring this up in this context? Because the Bible teaches that Jesus is not simply morally blameless. He isn't simply separated from sin. He isn't simply consecrated to God. He's all of those things and he's holy. But the religious believer, the religious leaders see it differently. They don't believe that. They don't believe that. And the reason why they don't believe that is because of the accusation. They see it differently. What about the person who says, I love Jesus? You need to ask them a separate question. Just a few weeks ago, a lady comes into my office and I, she has very, very strange beliefs. Strange beliefs about Jesus and strange beliefs about, about sin and strange beliefs about salvation. And I asked her, I said, do you, do you love Jesus? And she said, I absolutely love Jesus. And I asked her if she loved holiness. The reason why this becomes such an important question about loving holiness is because 
if you say you love Jesus, but you're not willing to turn from your sin and you're not willing to, 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 to separate yourself from sin and you're not willing to distance yourself from sin, your life, your real life will prove your real answer for the person who says, I love Jesus, but I don't like what Jesus has to say about sin. Then you put yourself in a very difficult position. It's a position that is going to at least begin to disconnect you and might generate hatred and eventually hostility because that's exactly what will happen on the part of the religious leaders. Look what it says in verse 34. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. This is blasphemy. This is the worst kind of blasphemy. The Pharisees don't deny the power. They don't deny the healing. They don't deny the miracles. The religious leaders deny the source of the power. If they truly believed that the God of Israel was the source of the power and the source of the healing and the source of the, the deliverance, then they're, they're, they're put in this most difficult position. They're going to have to consider the words of Jesus and the message of Jesus and the identity of Jesus and the message that he's preaching. Why couldn't the Pharisees simply refute the miracle, deny the miracle, explain the miracle away. And you know the answer because they were too numerous. They were too public. They were too provable. There's the dead girl who's come back to life. There's the paralytic who's been healed. There's the men whose eyes have been opened. There's the demonically possessed person who's been delivered. How can you make this go away? And how can the culture make you go away? How is it possible that you could possibly keep your mouth shut? How is it possible that when you open your mouth and you say these words, a real Jesus loves me and a real Jesus died for me and a real Jesus forgives me and a real Jesus reconciles me to the Father? And what is the religious leader's accusation? Jesus performs miracles by the power of Satan. By the way, the ruler of demons is only one of several names given to Satan in the Bible. His most common name, adversary. It's used 52 times. Devil, 35 times. He's called the king of death. He's called the ruler of darkness. He's called the deceiver. He's called Apollyon, the destroyer. He is called Beelzebub, the prince of demons. The passage brings out several things that we should consider. The first is the religious leaders, number one, deny that Jesus is holy. This is the conclusion they have to come to. And it's the same conclusion that the popular culture has to come to if they believe what he says in the Bible. How could Jesus be holy if he's controlled by Satan? How could he be holy if he's controlled by Satan and he manipulates demons? It also means that we can't remain neutral about Jesus. We can't just simply say, I'll decide later. 
I'll decide later whether or not he really is who he says he is. I'll decide later whether or not he's the son of God. I'll decide later whether the prophecies that, that declare who he is are really true and his message is true. I'll decide later. The Bible doesn't give us that ability. He's either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And the reasoning of these Pharisees also revealed their heart's condition. It also reveals your condition of heart and my condition of heart. What you deeply believe about Jesus will be a reflection of who you really are inside of your heart. Think of their vision of Jesus. This is their vision of Jesus. Jesus is a creature controlled by Satan. Jesus is a creature who casts out demons because he's manipulated by Satan. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He opens the blind eyes. He cleanses the, the leper. For what purpose? For what purpose? It's to deceive the Jew and destroy the nation. It's to turn them from the God of Israel. It's to undermine the law of Moses. He is a threat. Jesus is a threat. He is a threat to the religious system. And guess what? He's a threat to the culture in which you live. He's a threat. And if you believe what he believes, then you become a threat. Jesus himself says that he comes not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus said that true religion is on the inside and not just simply on external observances. Jesus has already made the admission that whatever it means to have a right relationship with God, it means to have a right heart with God. Jesus said that human beings are important to God and that God desires mercy and compassion and grace and love. And Jesus comes and he brings mercy, compassion, grace, and love. This is the kind of grace that brings life and understanding and healing. It's his power that liberates us. The king's presence in part initiates a profound catastrophe and crisis which requires a decision. And it was more. It was more than the Pharisees could bear. Because if Jesus was right, then they were wrong. If Jesus was right, then they were wrong. Jesus said righteousness is first inward and then outward in chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. The Pharisees believed and taught that righteousness is a matter of the external, Matthew 23, Luke 11. Jesus says you wash the outside, but you're unconcerned with the inside. Jesus said sin is a matter of heart, not just simply the things that you do in chapter 5, verses 17 through 48. The Pharisees thought that sin was mainly something that you did on the outside. Jesus said that righteousness is something that is done on the inside and that you should do it so that God could see it, not so that you could look for the praise of human beings. Remember what the testimony of the New Testament is. The Pharisees wanted to be seen by men in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12. And so it should prompt yet another question. Do I believe 
what Jesus believes? Do I believe what Jesus believed about creation? Do I believe what Jesus believed about being made in the image of God? Do I believe what Jesus believed about a fall? Do I believe what Jesus believed about sin? Do I believe what Jesus believed about God and salvation and the future? The Pharisees hatred for Jesus will grow and that hatred will turn to hostility and in their hearts they'll later hatch a plan to kill him. Jeremiah understood it correctly in chapter 17 verse 9 when he said that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and who can know it? Later in chapter 12, verse 22 through 30, Jesus is going to remind the people that any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? Jesus describes blasphemy against the spirit in verse 31 and says it won't be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come in chapter 12, verse 32. This blasphemy against the spirit consisted in attributing or ascribing to Satan the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you believe that Jesus was controlled by aliens or some invisible, extraterrestrial, supernatural power that isn't rooted and grounded in the self-existent God of the universe. And so the only way that we can adequately, adequately explain Jesus is through some other method other than what he says about himself, then the chances are minimum we're deceived and maximum we're playing a very dangerous game. So here's the big question. Was Jesus controlled by Satan or the Holy Spirit? It's a fairly easy question. Were the religious leaders controlled by Satan or by the Holy Spirit? Let's do just a quick investigation. Satan targets the mind. His weapon, lies. His purpose, to make us ignorant of God's will. What is our defense? The inspired, inerrant, sufficient word of God. Satan targets our bodies. His weapon, suffering. His purpose, to make us impatient with God's will. Our defense, the imparted grace of God. Satan targets the heart and the conscience. His weapon, Accusation, his purpose, indictment or prosecution by God's will. Our defense, the intercession of the Son of God in heaven. Satan's target, your will. His weapon, pride. His purpose, to make us walk away or become independent of God's will. Our defense, the Holy Spirit living inside of us. So who's the one who's actually controlled by Satan? When the Pharisees invite us to believe 
lies. Who's the one who's submitted to the Father? Who's the one who's controlled by the Spirit? Does the charge even make sense on any level? Will the people believe the Pharisees' explanation? Did these Pharisees themselves even believe the accusation themselves? I want you to think about this for just a minute. Think of the darkness. Think of the hardness of heart. Think of the blindness. Think of the anger which would prompt such a statement. How is it even possible to sustain that kind of unbelief? And how far will the unregenerate heart, the proud heart, go to protect itself against Jesus? Jesus has opened the blind eye. Jesus has opened the deaf ear. Jesus has brought a little dead girl back to life. And to what end? To deceive the nation? Or to make them free? And so what do we do with the person? Determined not to believe. Some of you have a husband like that or a wife like that, a mother or a father like that, a professor like that, a boss like that. You live in a world where the person is determined not to believe. What do you do with the person who's sold out to darkness, oblivious to the light? Make no mistake about it. The person who praises Jesus and then rejects him and ignores him and disobeys him is just as doomed as the person who makes the act accusation that Jesus is in league with the devil. John MacArthur rightly states, quote, any response to Jesus but the response of faith amounts to rejection and results in damnation. The king has power to bring the dead heart back to life. The king has power to give sight and to give speech. But the heart of the religious leaders remains dead. Their eyes blind. Their ears closed. The man in our story liberated from demons. The religious leaders controlled by demons. Martin Luther wrote a beloved hymn. Many of you are familiar with it. It's called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The hymn reminds us, quote, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That little word that Luther alludes to? is the word of God. It's the word of Jesus. It's the word spoken by Jesus. Satan's weapons, lies, suffering, pride, accusation. 
The purpose? For us to remain ignorant of God's will, to remain impatient with God's will, to act independent of God's will, to stand condemned by God's will. And what is God's will? It's that you turn from your sin. It's that you turn to the Savior. It's that you walk away from the darkness and the blindness and the emptiness. And that you receive Jesus. Our defense? The inspired word of God. The imparted grace of God. The indwelling of the Spirit of God. The intercession of Jesus in heaven for us. And what of our mind? And what of our heart? And what of our life? Thomas Adams writes, quote, Our mind is where our pleasure is. Our heart is where our treasure is. Our love is where our life is. But all of these are pleasure, treasure, and life are reposed in Jesus Christ. Is that true of you? Is that where your pleasure lies? Is that where your treasure lies? Then it's time to take off the sign that we've been wearing. Quiet Christian. It's to put on a new sign. It's one that says, outspoken Christian. He opens up your eyes. He opens up your heart. Here, he opens up his mouth. Doesn't it make perfect sense that we should open up ours? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for each and every person that this is true of us. That Jesus is our treasure. Jesus is our pleasure. Jesus is our life. The Jesus who loves us. Who died for us. Who rose from the dead. Who washes, cleanses, forgives, and reconciles. And Lord, we believe that his power and his authority then and now can change a life. When Jesus opens up our mind, cleanses our heart, and gives us the ability to speak, Lord, we pray that that's exactly what we would do. In Jesus' name. And all the saints said, let's stand.